Amen. Amen. I need that. To be reminded of the victory, to be reminded of what Christ Jesus has done. You know, there are several times in our lives where God would just come along and he'll give us a, a new emphasis, like he'll just speak a new word to us. I don't know if you need that every now and then, but I do, especially when we go through like some tough days. And wow, we have had some tough days over the last few months, not only dealing with a pandemic, but also looking at the different divisions that we see around our country. And as we have seen the hurricanes that have impacted us, I need to, I need to kind of get lost in the worship of the Lord sometimes, just to be reminded of how wonderful and victorious he is and to know that I'm on the winning side. And that's what I want to encourage you today. I want you to take your Bibles and I want us to begin a new series from the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 1. We're going to specifically look at the next, well, the next two chapters, three chapters in total that we're going to look at over the next few weeks as we talk about a word to the church. And this is a word of comfort and a word of challenge. You know, sometimes when you think about the book of Revelation, there are people that get rather frightened even even beginning to read through it, to look through what it says. They get a little concerned, like what's going to be said here and what's going to be done there and, you know, all this different stuff. I mean, there's some, there's some tough stuff when you look at the book of Revelation. But for the believer, for those of us who call on the name of Jesus, we've accepted him and we bear his name, this book is a book of comfort and a book of challenge. It is a book to remind us that God is victorious. Because the book of Revelation was written almost at the end of the first century. It was a time of intense persecution. Now, I'm going to talk more about that persecution next week. But it was intense persecution that the church was facing. They had pressure coming from every side. And what God does as he speaks to, as he speaks to his son, as the son speaks to the angel, as the angel speaks to John, is he gives us an unveiling, a revelation, so that you and I can be comforted to know how things will end, to know how God is in control at all times. So let's begin in Revelation chapter 1. Let's take the first two verses, and then we'll read through the others in just a few moments. But let's look at the first two. It says, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants, Things which must take shortly or shortly take place. And he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, to all things that he saw. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it, for the time is near. Now it begins very simply. The revelation of Jesus Christ. That's the way it begins, the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, revelation in the Greek is apocalypsis, apocalypsis. And you've probably heard the English term, term apocalypse. And that's where we get this from, the idea of apocalyptic, that is dealing with the end times. But here, the word apocalypsis, revelation, it means to draw back the veil to draw back the curtain so that you can see in some way what is happening. The revelation is a disclosure. It is God saying this is what is occurring in, in what will occur in the days to come. So it's kind of like God saying, hey, I'm going to give you a little bit of a tour behind the scenes, behind the scenes, so that you'll know 
what you can look forward to. I don't know if any of you have taken any of those tours, like when you go to Disney. Anybody been to Disney lately? How are the crowds at Disney? They're actually not too bad, I think. Maybe we ought to go. But you can go and you maybe used to could like take the behind the scenes tour, kind of see what was happening behind the scenes, what was, hap- what was going on and how they would put all these things together. Well, here the Lord says, I want to draw back the curtain. I'm going to let you see what's going on behind the scenes. And I'm going to give you a preview of what is to come. It's going to be an unveiling. It's going to be a revelation. Now notice it is the revelation of Jesus Christ. The revelation of Jesus Christ. It can be translated the revelation by Jesus Christ, about Jesus Christ, or with Jesus Christ. It could be translated in a lot of different ways. And I don't know about you, but I love those multiple choice questions where you get to D and it says all of the above, and you can choose it if you would like to. You know what? This is all about Jesus. In other words, you can choose D because it is by him, it is about him, it is from him, it is with him, because Jesus Christ is the central figure in the book of Revelation, just as he is the central figure in all of the Bible. I just finished up a series on Moses And I think I mentioned there that Moses is not the hero of like the book of Exodus. Jesus is the hero of the book of Exodus. Jesus is the the hero of every Old Testament book. He's the hero of every New Testament book. So everything in the Bible is about Jesus. And when you come to Revelation, you start reading through it. One of the questions you should ask yourself is this. What does this say about Jesus? What does this want me to do on behalf of Jesus? In in what way will Jesus be magnified by our lives as we have read this? Because it's all about Jesus. If you read through it and you just find, oh, this is going to happen, that's going to happen, this, and you somehow disconnect it from the personality and the work of Jesus, you've missed the point of revelation. Because it is the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, some of you look at me and say, Reggie, I mean, didn't Jesus reveal himself when he came and walked here on this earth? Absolutely he did. He showed us who the Father was. And you and I would never know anything about God except God takes the initiative to show us who he is. And here in this passage, though, Jesus is not just captured as the suffering lamb on the cross, but rather we'll see him in a glorified state. We will see Jesus in a different dimension. We'll see him coming back victoriously. So this is an unveiling about Jesus and who he is and what he will accomplish on our behalf. It says, and he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John. So this is the way the revelation was transmitted. God the Father transmitted it to the Son. The Son transmitted it to an angel. The angel then transmitted it to John. John. Who is John? And what is he doing receiving this revelation? Well, John was the apostle of Jesus. Now, I love biographical studies. That's one of the reasons I got so into Moses a few months ago and like tried to preach through his life because I love like looking at the character sketches in the scripture and bringing those character sketches to real life and applying it to who we are today. So I love to look at the apostle John. The apostle John was called at a very young age to follow Jesus. 
You remember what John was doing? Any of you remember what John was doing? He was with his brother James, and he was there on the, on the shore of Galilee. And he was mending the nets. And Jesus walks by, and he basically says, Come follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. He's inviting these individuals to follow him, to take on his yoke and to learn from him. Now, John was, again, working for his family's business. You ever worked for your family's business before? Kind of you, you kind of helped out, you worked some of you, and some of you may be returning to your family business one day. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's kind of neat to see how people through the different generations serve through one vocation. It's kind of cool to see that. Well, in the New Testament day, they didn't have many opportunities. Like if you were from a fisherman's family, you were probably going to be a fisherman. If you were a carpenter or your dad was a carpenter, you probably would become a carpenter. There weren't many options in the New Testament day. But here's Jesus. He comes along and he says, hey, I want you to come follow me. I know you're supposed to have a deal with your dad. I know you're supposed to be a fisherman. But I want to make you a true fisherman. I want you to come and follow me. And John and his brother James followed Jesus. John was about, ah, we're not told exactly, but from the way I can figure it up, he was about 20 years old. Most of you in this place, y'all are somewhere around 20 probably. Think about this. The age of 20, somewhere thereabouts, he could have even been a teenager. Could, I don't think he was any older than 25. He had just been called to be a disciple of Jesus. Would that not be so cool? Like, that God looked at this young man and he said, I want you to come and I want you to follow me. And John followed. To be a follower, you have to follow. That means that John stayed every day basically with Jesus. Every day he followed him and he heard him teach. And at night he would lay down and, and, and he would hear Jesus as he would pray. And he would see Jesus as he would perform miracles. It was, it was this awesome opportunity to follow Jesus. By the way, if you're a follower of Jesus, that means you still got to follow Jesus. And if you're a follower, if you are called a disciple, that means you spend time with him all the time. It's not just part of your life. He is your life. And John says, hey, I'm going to follow. And he's going to follow Jesus. And, and he, he follows him day in and day out. And get this. John rises in the ranks, if you want to put it that way. I would call him at some point part of the upper management. Because all of a sudden... He's part of the inner circle. Remember, Jesus had disciples, and then he had three that were kind of like the inner circle. Peter, James, and John. And he would allow them to experience things that the other disciples would not experience. For example, when he would go in and he would raise the synagogue ruler's daughter, he would take these three with him. He would take these three so that they could see his power, only those three. Those three would be the ones who would go up on the mount and they would see Jesus transfigured into this glorious appearance. Just those three, Peter, James, and John. And then when Jesus was praying the night before he was to die in the Garden of Gethsemane, what did he do? He called in these three a little closer into the garden, closer to him, 
to pray. Now I know some of you say, well, that was just a click. I can't believe Jesus had a click. No, Jesus had some people that he brought a little closer, just like you have closer friends. It doesn't mean you're not friendly. It doesn't mean you're not investing in other people. He just had these three, and John was one of the three. It doesn't mean John was perfect. Because John wasn't perfect. When you look at his life, he made some mistakes. For example, he was standing outside a Samaritan village one day. And these Samaritans had rejected Jesus' entry into the village. And you know what John said, John and James? John said, Lord, would you like us to call some fire down from heaven to destroy these people? Lord, I'm feeling my inner Elijah coming out. I want to channel Elijah. Just as Elijah could bring down fire, I want to bring down fire and I want to destroy these people. That's the reason if you look at the Bible, James and John are called the sons of thunder. Because they would want to bring thunder and wrath upon people. They weren't too forgiving in many different ways. Jesus, of course, reminded him that he had not come to destroy people, but he had come to bring salvation to people. See, John messed up. John was flesh and blood just like us. There was another opportunity in John's life where his mother, do you remember this in Scripture? James and John's mother went to Jesus. Mama went to Jesus. And what did she say? She said, my boys are special, Jesus. My boys, they are good, they are gifted, they are... One of these days, Jesus, when you come into the kingdom, will you let one son reign on your right and the other son reign on your left? Mamas have influence. And maybe mama went by herself because sometimes mamas do things that you're not really expecting anyway, right? They do it on their own. But I'm kind of convinced that John and James might even put their mama up to going to Jesus because the Bible says that they would argue over who was the greatest. The disciples would. You see, he messed up from time to time. But John was a follower of Jesus, and I believe one of Jesus' best friends. The Bible calls him the beloved disciple. The one that was loved. The one that Jesus had an affection for. On the cross, there Jesus is dying on our behalf. But he looks out, and what does he see? He sees his mother, Mary. And he knows that his mother needs to be taken care of, especially during the New Testament day. And what does he do? He looks over at John, the disciple. And he says, behold your mother. And he looks at his mother, and he says, behold your son. What did he just do? Jesus, on the cross, was taking care of his mama and said, hey, John, you are in charge of caring for her when I'm gone. You're going to watch after her. So John became this very special individual in Jesus' life who was, who was caring for his mom. And Peter was the one, I mean, John was the one that beat Peter to the tomb that day. Remember when the resurrection morning came along and they got the, they got the word from the ladies, Peter and John, they ran to the tomb and John says, I outran Peter. Look at the gospel, because John in his gospel tells you that. I outran Peter. I don't think that was a real big feat. I don't know why, and maybe I'm wrong, but I just see Peter as kind of this bigger guy. It's not quite in shape. 
like John is? Maybe, I don't know. Maybe that's just me. But John beats him to the tomb, and he looks in, and Peter goes in. Jesus is not there. He is risen. There's victory. And how John would go from there to minister. He could heal people, according to Acts chapter 2. He could heal the lame man. He would faithfully serve Jesus. Even when his brother James was killed in the book of Acts by Herod Agrippa, John kept going. He was faithful. He just kept going. He would write the book of John. He would write those three letters that we have that bear his name. He would be faithful. He'd be a pastor at Ephesus. When he's, when he's getting this, get it, when he's getting this revelation, you know how old he is? He's basically somewhere between 80 to 90 years old. Because the revelation is written 60 years after the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus. So here's John that would have been his friend, but notice how he's described here. The servant. The servant. If anybody had something to brag about, it was John. But this teaches us a lesson a little bit. No matter what our status, no matter how much we've done through the years, do you realize that you and I are still just servants of Christ? We're still just the ones that are called to obey, to do what he's asked us to do. So this revelation is given to John. But the revelation is not just given to John for him to keep. It's to be communicated to the saints, to the church. It's to be communicated to us. So look in verse 3. It says, Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and keep those things which are written in it, for the time is near. So here he says again, there is blessing. So those who would read it and those who would hear it, they're going to be blessed. Many of you look like New Testament scholars. You've been studying New Testament for a while. And that's good. Because if you look in the New Testament and you see the word blessed, that means you just found a what? A beatitude. That's what we call it in church life. A beatitude. Most of the time people will look at Matthew chapter 5 and they'll talk about blessed are the poor in spirit and all those kinds of things. Those are the Beatitudes. This is a Beatitude. There's seven of them in the book of Revelation that you'll find. And do you know what blessed means in the Old and New Testament? It means happy or content. It means you got some joy somewhere along the way. Some preacher years ago wrote a book on the Beatitudes, and he called it the Be Happy Attitudes. Because it's all about your attitude. It's about contentment. It's about joy. So here, John says that when you hear this word, when you're reading this book, you're going to have some type of joy and contentment as a believer. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus, you're not scared. You're comforted by what is said in Revelation. There is joy that you have. And the way they would do it in the New Testament time is that one person would be chosen to read the letter. And that individual, maybe like a preacher or pastor, he would read the letter and those that were there in the congregation, they would hear it. Because most of the congregation, most of them were illiterate, so they couldn't read it for themselves. They needed somebody to read it to them. And they would hear. And it says, as you would hear that word, as you would hear it spoken to you, there would be joy that would be brought to your life. 
And as you did it, as you did what the Word said, you would find even more joy. It is a revelation to the church in order to bring blessing, in order to bring joy, in order to bring life. And it was written, it says to the seven churches, verse 4, of Asia Minor. Asia Minor is in present-day Turkey. And in present-day Turkey, there were these seven churches, and there were also other ones. He was not trying to be exhaustive. He didn't try to capture every church in Asia Minor. There was a church like Colossae, like we got our book of Colossians from. There were others, but here there were seven that were like representative. And we're going to work through those seven in the days to come. But there were seven that would represent us. And the revelation was to us. And it was about what would take place. It was about what would occur. And that what would occur soon. When you look at verse 1, it says what will shortly take place. In verse 3, it says, for the time is near. Some people will read that scripture today and they'll say, well, it's been 2,000 years and Jesus hasn't come yet. And there will be people today that would dismiss the coming of Jesus because it's taken so long. But remember what Peter said? Peter said, well, a 1,000 years is like a day to the Lord. A day is like a 1,000 years. He doesn't count time like we do. For him, it's just like a couple of days. But here, 2,000 years, we may, we may be lulled into thinking that Jesus is not coming. Remember when I was younger, and the preachers would talk about it. And man, I could almost, I could almost feel the coming of Jesus when they would preach. I had one of those kind of like old-time preachers that would, I mean, he could make the chandeliers shake when he preached the volume of his voice. And I could see him like uh, pounding the pulpit. I always loved to take friends of mine that stayed the night with me. I loved to take them to church because I knew they were going to be in for some kind of awakening. They, you know, we'd stay up too late during the night and we'd come on Sunday morning and we'd be kind of tired. And one of my friends, you know, he'd be like, you could see him like just, yeah, I saw one of you over here doing that, man. He's kind of like, you know, like starting to do that. And I knew it was going to happen because Brother Holland believed that when you preached, you would uh, start low, go slow, uh, rise higher, and take fire. That's how he would describe preaching. So I knew it was going to come. And about the time he started getting a little higher and he was taking fire, and his voice, I could, one of my buddies one day, I just saw him like just his, nap, his neck snap because of the volume. But I could hear Brother Holland preach, and he would preach like that, and like you could almost sense the presence of God. And there were times he would talk about the return of Jesus. And as a child, I would sit there and I'd be like, yes, Jesus is coming back. And I remember the preacher said, and he would often say, he may come back before we finish this service because we do not know. He could come back at any time. When you look at these references to his time, how the time is near, how the season is near, how Jesus is, is going to come very soon... It's not talking about just the day or the hour. He's talking about that we need to live as though it is imminent that Jesus is going to come back at any moment. Do you realize Jesus could come any moment? He could come before I finish this service. He could come tomorrow morning. He could come 3,000 years from now. He could come at any time. But because of that, it affects the way we live. 
that he is going to come. See, don't get this. Don't, don't get this wrong. There are a lot of us that may disagree. Does the tribulation come first? Does this happen? Does this happen? But all of us should agree in this place that Jesus is going to come. And he is going to come in a moment when we think not. And you and I need to live accordingly because he is coming. And that's what he's saying. This is a revelation to the church. The Lord has pushed back the curtain so that you and I could see that Jesus is going to come. And notice the letter, the way it's framed, grace to you and peace, because you can't have grace without peace. Grace to you first and peace. From him who is and who was and who is to come. The Father, just as he was revealed in Exodus chapter 3, I am that I am. The one that is eternal, he is speaking to you. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne, I believe that is a reference. The number seven is number of completion. As I've studied this, I believe it is a reference to the Holy Spirit. And then from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness and firstborn from the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and has made us kings and priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. I believe this is a Trinitarian statement. The Father, the Spirit, and the Son. God and the Godhead, they write to you. They speak to you. This God is wanting to move you into right living as you experience the comfort of his coming, but also you are challenged by it as well. He said, from Jesus Christ. I want to focus there, verse 5, just a moment. Jesus Christ. This is a reference to Psalm 89. If you go to Psalm 89, verse 27 and verse 37, you'll see how these descriptors were used of Jesus, the Messianic King. It says he was the firstborn from the dead. I like to translate it like this. He was the first one out of the dead ones. He was the first one. He has preeminence of his resurrection over the ones that will follow. And he is the ruler of the kings of the earth. In other words, he has sovereignty. He's the king now over all things. Hey, did you see that title, Christ? The revelation of Jesus Christ. That title means anointed one. It means the anointed king that they were looking for. When I was over in Millsaps uh, College some years ago, my professor told me that there was a student that was having a problem with understanding Jesus and understanding like this title, Christ. He didn't understand it as a title. He understood it as a name, Jesus Christ. That was his name. And the student asked, the student said, well, why doesn't Joseph and Mary have the same name that Jesus had? The professor was like, what? And he was, he was like, well, I mean, you don't have Mary Christ and Joseph Christ. You have Jesus Christ. Now, most of you would say, oh, I understand. You raised wherever. This happened in Jackson, Mississippi, so that makes sense, right? Although the guy was a transfer from Arkansas. I think that's where he was from. But here he was. He was like, what's the name? Christ is not the name. Christ is the title. It means king. It means the anointed one. It means the Messiah. And here, as John is writing and revealing him, he's saying to us 
that he is the king over every king of this earth. Do you know that our God is over every president? He is over every prince. He is over every king, whether it is here in the United States of America or he is over in any other nation. He is in charge still. Should that not bring you some comfort? When you see all the things that are playing out across our globe and it seems like things are spiraling out of control, you need to hear once again, he is the sovereign God over every king, over every ruler that this earth would produce. He says, you as a church need to remember that. You need to remember that he is the ruler, that he is the one, oh, I he is the one who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. Did you hear that? He loved us. I can tell you to look at your own life and look at your family and where you've come from. Yeah, I could look at that. I, I could ask you to look at your blessings. You've been blessed. I don't care what you think. If you're sitting here today and like we are, we've been pretty blessed. And that is an example of his love. But the supreme example of his love is when he died on the cross for you. When Jesus died for you, he showed you he loved you. And he loved me personally, he loved you personally, but get this, he loves the church. He loves Temple Baptist Church. He loves the other local churches that are here in this area. He loves the church in general. He loves the church. I know some people lately that have been struggling with churches. They've been struggling with the way they see things playing out. I'll be honest with you. I've been contacted by different people that are struggling with churches and even the political divisions that somehow have come into the churches and They've started driving wedges among believers. May I say this to you? You and I ought to love the church because Christ loved the church. And it doesn't matter what kind of perspective this and this would come. I don't care where you come from. If we've been united in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, we ought to love one another and we ought to demonstrate that when we walk out into this community. We ought not to allow petty differences and even the political agendas to divide us in any way. Rather, we are to know that Christ Jesus has loved us and we are to love one another as he has taught us. He loved us. He washed us. He cleansed us. That should comfort you and it should comfort me as we think about the days ahead and the days even that we're in. It says, He has made us kings and priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. He has demonstrated his revelation to the church. He's pulled it back so that you and I can have some comfort. But one day, this unveiling will be before all. Before all his subjects. Like, we have, the, we have the written word here. We know what's going to happen. But one of these days, when the curtain is fully pulled back, people will be able to see him as the victor. Every individual, every individual 
Notice what it says in verse 7. Behold. John uses that word a lot to get your attention. Behold. He is coming with clouds and every eye will see him. Even they who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, amen. This is a conflation of Daniel chapter 7 verse 13 and Zechariah chapter 12 verse 10. He uses these verses to remind us that Jesus again is coming and that one day every eye will see. Every eye will see. Those who pierced him, those that were his enemies, those of all nations, not just the nation of Israel, but all nations would see him as the king and Lord. Jesus had predicted this over Matthew chapter 24, verses 30 through 31. Some of the same language. That one of these days Jesus is going to come and everybody will recognize that it is Jesus. This is, the, this is the poignant point here, I think. You can either repent or you can have remorse at the coming of Jesus. In Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10, the people understood what was going on with their God. And you know, they were challenged to repent of their sins. They had to repent. They had to change their ways. Here, though, These are not repenting of their sins. They're expressing remorse. There's a big difference. There are people that feel sorry about their sins, but they they allow nothing to be done about that. They just keep on going. Repentance is saying, I will not continue through the Lord's Spirit and through His strength. I will see a change come in my life, and I'll repent of those sins, and I turn to Jesus away from the things that have been entangling me. That's repentance. One day there are going to be a lot of people when Jesus comes and they're going to be remorseful. They're going to recognize him. They're going to know that he's the king of all kings. Paul said that one of these days, every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. One of these days it's going to happen. He's already won the victory. He's just going to come and consummate that victory and allow everybody to see it because well look at verse 8 he says I am the Alpha and the Omega the beginning and the end who is and who was and who is to come the Almighty the Alpha and Omega many of you you know that Alpha is the first alpha, first letter in the alphabet of the Greek alphabet And then omega is the last. So it's kind of like saying A to Z, right? Jesus is the A to Z of our lives. He's the beginning and he's the end. He was there in the beginning. He's there when it all comes to an ending. He is, he's there. But what I love to think about too is that Jesus is not just the A to Z to your life, but he's also the L-N-O-N-P of your life. That means that he's your life now. He controls the beginning, he controls the end, but he also controls the middle. And he's right there. He's the Alpha and the Omega. And he's the one that is going to bring all these things to consummation one day. And he's going to return, and it's going to be victorious. Think about a church, a church there that they were facing persecution, and people were coming at them right and left. 
And God says, I, wanna, I just want to let you know, there's not an emperor, there's not a king, there's not a prince that will have the final victory. I will have the final victory because I am the Alpha and the Omega. When you look through Revelation, when you study it, I want you to know that is the theme, victory in Jesus. Don't ever forget it. Some of these days you're going to start studying and before long you're going to have a big chart because everybody that studies Revelation, they got a chart. And you're going to look at it and you're going, oh, I got it all figured out. Don't miss the big picture. Because I have in my life. Some years ago I was pastoring. I was in college. Started pastoring at Canaan Baptist Church. Outside of Walnut, Mississippi. Had about probably 40, 50 members. Most of them, well, I'd say the median age is 70. Right? It's a little older congregation. And I went up there with my Blue Mountain self after I'd gone through a lot of Bible courses and I thought I knew everything. And when I went through seminary, I knew I knew everything. And I preached like that sometimes. And I would started a new series there at Canaan on Revelation. Revelation chapter 1. I preached through every verse of the, the book of Revelation. I went through it all with them. And I remember telling them all about different theories. I told them about being a premillennial believer. I talked about the postmillennial, the the ah millennial. I talked about the post-trib, the pre-trib. I talked about all that stuff. And some of you say, I don't know what in the world that means. It's all right. Most of the time, people talking about it don't know what it means either. But we think we do. And we were trying to talk about all that kind of stuff. And I was doing it on Sunday night. And after I got through, I saw one of the elderly men walking to me. His name was Mr. Jack Smith. Jack had been an old firefighter in Memphis, Tennessee. And he was a strong, big man. Wonderful, calm spirit about him. He was my deacon chairman, and he could speak and people would listen. But Luke Gehrig's has, had begun taking its impact upon him. He had been diagnosed with the disease some months earlier. And as he walked down that night, he, his walk had been impacted. And as he got to me, I could tell, obviously, his speech had been impacted as well. He said, Brother Reggie, I don't know about all that in Revelation. I don't know about, I don't know about the premillennial, the postmillennial, the amillennial. I don't know. But I know this, that when I read the book of Revelation, all I can think about is victory in Jesus. Victory in Jesus. And if you go through Revelation trying to figure everything out and you forget that there's victory in Jesus, you've lost it. Because the message is that Jesus is victorious. It is the unveiling of Jesus. It is given to John, it's given to us. Why? So that we'll know that he is victorious. 
You and I need to stop living like we're defeated. You and I need to stop giving in to everything that's around us. We need to live victoriously in the Lord Jesus because when it's all said and done, the Alpha and the Omega will return, the beginning and the end, and he will see us, well, he will see us brought into victory with him because he is the Lord of lords and the King of kings. And you don't forget that. Even as you go through your own struggles, even as you go through the difficulties you see around us, Jesus is Lord and he always will be. Nothing can change that. And one of these days, yeah, one of these days, maybe even tomorrow, even today, he's going to come back and receive us unto himself because that was his promise. And that is what we're looking forward to. One of the reasons we pray like John prays, even so, Come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we come to you, and Lord, we thank you. We thank you that you have given us strength. We thank you that you have given us comfort and blessing. That even through these tough days, that you have revealed, a rev- you have revealed yourself, you've unveiled yourself to us so that we could have comfort and strength in following you. God, I pray for my brothers and sisters who are here. First of all, I do pray for them that they know you. Because we're told one of the reasons you haven't come is because you are giving opportunity for people to come to repentance. And God, this day in this place, if there are those who are not saved, who are not giving their lives to you fully, Lord, this would be a day of great salvation. And we pray it for them. Those of us who are here, we need to start living more urgently as though your coming is imminent. And Lord, we pray that we'd be found faithful through your son, the Lord Jesus. God, bless us now and prepare us even as we take the Lord's Supper through this moment of commitment, this moment of decision. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand today?